Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Abby Carcio. And I'm your other host, Sydney Cummings. And from wherever you're listening, welcome to Megged, a women's soccer podcast where we talk about anything and everything related to the women's professional sport. This episode, we'll be talking about the importance of winning in women's football. Move your feet. This is Megged. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Megged. Abby, how are you doing? I am fantastic, Sydney Ann, and the reason being is because I enjoyed an amazing weekend of football last weekend. We had those top-of-the-table clashes, and my team, Arsenal, came out victorious. We had Chelsea lose, so they dropped three points, and then Arsenal won against Manchester United 3-1, so we bumped up three points, so I'm very thrilled, and it was like really good football to watch so very happy with that how are you doing Sid I wait going off of that I saw that Leah Williamson got taken out of um the England squad did she get hurt in that match she didn't play in that match she had a hamstring injury or that's what they were saying so I think that's just a small uh injury to work through and then they're gonna be cautious about it yeah I feel like that's always like a it's unfortunate but like expected setback sometimes when coming back from an ACL um, not sure if she did a cadaver or if they took from her hamstring, but sad. Leah Williamson. I hope she's she's good soon. I'm doing I'm doing well. The sun is out in Scotland right now, which is a rarity. It was raining literally 20 minutes ago, so I don't know how long it'll last, but it's nice. Um, and then we're you know it's an international break right now, so team is looking a little sp- sparse. Um, but it'll be just a nice week to to work on different things at training. Uh, which actually brings me to some news, international break. And because of that, I think it's important to shout out the 2024 CONCACAF Women's Gold Cup starts this week. Um, and it's the first time that they're hosting that on the women's side. So it's the first Women's Gold Cup. Um, so obviously anything like that where we can bring insight and we can bring um, exposure to women's football is always great news, um, especially doing it in the CONCACAF uh, Federation. Some other news as well, like Abby mentioned, Arsenal did win, but with that win, they also sold out Emirates Stadium. Abby, what are your thoughts there? I mean, it's crazy because throughout this season, there have been multiple regular season games at the Emirates, pulling numbers like 40,000, 50,000 and climbing each time. And so this one against Manchester United, a top of the table clash, of course, you're going to sell out. And I think Arsenal is really leading the way in the women's game for fan engagement. So I'm so thrilled to see that, but I also see a lot of consistency with these numbers they're pulling. And speaking of breaking records, Rachel Kundanangi from Zambia has broken the women's transfer record. She's but she was acquired by BFC, the NWSL expansion team, and she broke that record. So obviously, it's something so great to see that record. I feel like is constantly being broken these days, which is great um, in terms of visibility and in terms of what we were saying, like investment in the women's game financially. Um, but honestly, it, I feel like it's a little bit special, more special that it's a player from Zambia, which is obviously an underdeveloped football nation. Um, it's not like one of the powerhouse top nations. And I think it just really goes to show that like we've talked about this in many different ways, but there are great footballers everywhere in the world. So I just think that's really important that, you know, she's kind of had that exposure. And looking at their now counterparts of the NWSL, 
the USL, which we covered in our last episode about um, them getting Division One sanctioning, so definitely check that out if you haven't listened. They have announced that they will be doing free agency. So this makes a very big difference, like a massive, massive difference between the USL Super League and the NWSL. The NWSL does a draft, and they recently changed um, some of the rules so that you have to be in the league for a certain amount of time before you have free agency, whereas the USL Super League is saying right off the bat, like if you are not contracted, you are a free agent. Abby, we've obviously talked about like there's going to be massive differences between the NWSL and the USL Super League. Is this one you were expecting? Is this one you're excited to see? I put a poll on our Instagram and I was actually shocked by the amount of people that said like, I'll miss the, the chaos of the NWSL draft. I think it's to be expected that the USL is going to do things differently. So it wasn't too shocking for me, but I do think it's really relevant, especially in an election year, we talked about um, different laws in, in different states and not having the agency to choose which state you're actually playing in. And so I think that's going to be a huge draw to the USL Super League is, yeah, that agency over where you're actually going to be. Yeah, and I definitely think that this is really important in giving autonomy to the players. And I mean, we really went in depth about the difference between the USL Super League and the NWSL in our last episode. So give it a listen. But I think the USL Super League really needs to differentiate itself from the NWSL because what's the draw? What's the appeal? And I think this is a massive way to do that. So hopefully more news continues to come out about that league and we will keep you as updated as we can. But for now, we are going to dive into our episode where we talk about winning in women's football. Okay, so I presented this question to Abby, and I'm just, I think it's just a good place to start. Overarching, Abby, there's so many different ways we can take this question. Point blank, is winning the most important thing in women's football? Right off the bat, like my... Quick answer is no. Um, winning is a result of doing the important things in my mind. Okay, I agree with you. So let's dive in, right? You definitely have like a coach perspective. And I think like coach versus player is very interesting when we talk about winning because a coach's job is tied to their winning percentage. If you're not winning, you're getting fired. Whereas as a player, if your team's not winning, you might get shuffled around, but you, you have a lot more job security regardless of the results, um, especially if you're playing well. So if you look at it from a coaching perspective, Abby, does your answer change? Yeah, I think you do have this element of if you don't win, you will be fired. So that's very clearly a reason to win. But like I said before, everything else needs to be done correctly to win. But sometimes everything is done correctly and you still don't win. And so there's this real paradox about the situation that I struggle with, but I do think the ultimate success of a coach is determined by the ability to do both of those things is to do everything else, which means player management, um, tactical development, technical development, make sure you do all of those things perfectly well and also win. And so, yeah, in a nutshell, success of a coach is doing those two things at the same time consistently. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with you. I think that for a player, it's not the most important thing. I think sometimes it feels like the most important thing. But then if you actually sit down and think about it, there have been so many times on so many different teams where I've won a match and the team just doesn't feel great because you didn't play well. 
So I think that as a player, your mentality is always about competing, being the best version of yourself that you can be. Obviously, it's about doing well. And so I think that those are at the forefront of players' minds as opposed to winning. And like you said, if you do those things, winning should come. Um, I think, unfortunately, while I love your perspective as a coach, I don't think enough coaches have that perspective. And I think if you break it down for different divisions, right? Like if we just talk college, like women's college football, sure, I think that those people will win at any cost, right? Like you don't have the time to develop, like you just need to win. 18 year olds literally hold your your job security in their hand, you just need to win. But like, if we look at professional as well, I just feel like sometimes I'm going to look specifically at the NWSL. Sometimes it's terrible football and it's literally just about who can be the most athletic and who can score. And I think sometimes like they're okay with that. That's why I think there's a big gap between the teams in that league that play like pretty nice football and teams that don't. Well, I mean, I can talk about Kia McNeil on this podcast as we've had her on and Kia. So I had this mentality of, okay, pretty football is going to win games. And Kia completely debunked that. Um, she, she she said, listen, ideally we want to play nice football, but at the end of the day, that might not get you the result. And so I've had to change that mentality in my coaching journey because I need to win games. And sometimes you have to sacrifice the the product a little bit, not holistically, but a little bit. You do need to do that. So I'll push back on you in that respect. But I think if we look at coaching and players, um, I think coaches need to think about winning less and I think players need to think about winning games more. And I'll say this because sometimes players are really egotistical and self-centered and they think that like they just need to be playing well and that's their main goal and that'll help the team win. But sometimes making a tweak in your game that might sacrifice your development is essential to get the three points on the weekend. Yeah, I mean, but if, if you think about what what you're saying, right, with Kia... I think there's a difference between sacrificing it to grind out a game. Like sometimes you have a game plan, you go in, everything hits the fan, like, okay, it is what it is. You just have to, you just have to find a way to win. I think those things happen. I think sometimes it's a mentality like long-term. And I think that's like, what's the bad mentality because even what you're saying, right. As a player, if I have to make a sacrifice on the weekend, you are developing in that. But I think what you're saying in terms of like, we need to think about winning more as a player is because if you're thinking about winning, it's driving everything that you do, right? You run faster to the ball, you tackle harder, you are more clinical in your finishing, you're defending, whatever. So I get, I get that. But I think when, when personally, when I think of that mentality, I'm not thinking of it as I need to win, I need to win. And then that's driving me. I think of it as like, I need to compete. I need to be the best. And then as a result, that leads me to do the things that would lead to my, like me having the impact in winning, because obviously I can't just do it alone. So like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't actually think I agree with you because I think that there are ways to drive that you win, that, that you'll get the result as a player without thinking, I need to win, I need to win, I need to win. Sure. I think, and that comes from the messaging from the coach. And like I said before, you definitely want to make sure that you're focusing less on the result and more on the steps needed to get to that result uh, when you're stating that to players. But the player's mentality, sometimes you go into games and you're just thinking about yourself, like, I didn't have a good game. Okay, but we got the result. 
So I, I think being able to separate those two things and then place one higher than the other at certain times is crucial. So especially on the weekends, winning should be your main priority. Development should be your main priority throughout the week, doing all the right things to ensure that you're ready for that match. But when it comes match day, yes, focusing on yourself, knowing your role and doing those things. But the ultimate goal is to win a game. That is why you put the boots on. There's nothing else there. Okay. Yeah. You want to play pretty football on the weekend, but that comes second to winning. Your first priority is to win a match. That's why we play football. Yes. There are other reasons we play football, but on match day, the main priority is winning. Yeah, I like that. Like during the week, that's your development time on the weekend. That's when it's like lock in that winning mentality. It's kind of like this aspect of the long game versus the short game, right? Like winning is the short game. The long game is the development piece. And I don't know, Abs, like as a coach, right? Like you get this new team. It's difficult, I feel like, given preseason's never long enough. I feel like if you ask any any coach in any league, no matter how long preseason is, it's never long enough to develop, right? And to get that chemistry and such. So like, how do you then manage the long game versus the short game constantly? Is it just what you said? The long game is during the week. The short game is on the weekends. Like, that's when we have to win. Like, how do you get that mentality when every single player has a different mentality as well, right? Like, we're talking about how ingrained winning is in your in your mentality as a female footballer. Of course, like, everything we've ever done is to win. Like, you get to where you are by winning. But that means different things to different people. So how are you developing the long game while still like being successful in the short game? Yeah, this is, I think this is like the question of the century for coaches. I'll start with preseason. It's really difficult for a coach to get a new team and inject all of their philosophies in a condensed period of time. And so to measure a coach's success in the first five games of a season, I think is unfair because you don't have enough time to completely revamp that team and install your philosophies in the way you want to. So that's kind of the preseason aspect. But I'll go back to what I said at the beginning of this. For a coach to be successful, I think you need to weave the two things, winning and then player development together seamlessly. And I think that's what something that's something so interesting to me as a coach is to take every single player, all of them have different paths and trajectories for their individual development. How can you seamlessly weave that into your overarching plan as a coach to have success? Um, I think that's something that I really find, uh, like I said, interesting, but it's really difficult because you have all of these different moving parts. So I actually don't think they're two separate entities. I think they're, they should be woven in together. Okay, Abs, you mentioned a coach shouldn't be judged on the results of the first five games, right? I agree with you. I think like, let's look at the NWSL. I think there's way too much turnover with coaches in that league. And I think it's because they don't win. They get passed along. The next coach comes in. You don't win. They get passed along. Obviously we've talked about the other things that go on in that league that result in staff being removed, which needs to happen. But if we're talking strictly about results, right, this makes me question like job security as a coach because of this, like, never-ending dichotomy between the long game and the short game, even if they're intertwined, between winning versus developing and all of the all of these things. I'm getting a little off topic here, but do you think that it should be required that a coach is signed for a minimum of two years so that that first year, like, it's really hard to judge them on year one? Or do you think, no, it's just five games by the middle of the season, you should figure it out? I don't think that we should 
pigeonholed ourselves to a two-year contract because there are instances where a coach just doesn't mesh with a culture of a team and it's not going to work. I think you need to give them time to develop, but it will be fairly evident if it's working over a six-month period or if it's not working. I don't think a coach needs two years to develop their their philosophy and integrate it into a team culture. I think maybe a six-month timeline is is a fair assessment. Um, but I do think that if you just listen to the players and you listen to the staff and you observe a week of, of training sessions, you can see if that's building into something positive or if it's just stagnated and building into something negative. So I, I don't think we should put a limit on our, ourselves, but I do think people need to have a little bit more flexibility, especially in the, especially in the higher offices, um, like just telling a coach when they don't really know what's going on. Oh, no results, five, five matches, you're out. I, I don't think, I think that decision is made sometimes a little too quickly. Yeah. And I feel like maybe it's important. We've been throwing out this word, like developing. Do you think it's important that to like clarify what developing means to you? See if it's different than what it means to me. Yeah. I think player, individual player development is looking at their strengths and weaknesses, um, improving on the weaknesses, but really cultivating your strengths. I think that's what player development is, whether that's psychological, physical, what have you. I think on the coaching side, you're you're developing multiple things at one time. You're developing individual players. You're developing a team culture. You're developing a style for your team, a philosophy for your team. And so every day making some ground and explaining that philosophy, explaining those different things, and then integrating them into practice every single day. And that should be some sort of incremental timeline or incremental uh, line graph, I would say. Yeah, I definitely agree with you from a coaching perspective on what developing is and how there's so many things that you're developing at one time, right? That's why you know, heavy is the the head that wears the crown as the boss, right? Like you're developing the players, you're developing the team as a collective, you're developing the culture, style of play, all these things that you said, right? As a player, however, I think of it a little bit different, right? Like you said, mastering the things that you're really good at, like really focusing on your strengths. I actually think of it as the opposite. If I know what I'm good at, to me, developing is I know what I'm good at, do it consistently, but like, don't spend that much time and that much thought on it unless you start messing up. But to me, developing is like during that, you know, the long game that we're talking about, it's working on the things that I'm not really good at and doing those things really well so that they kind of both mesh together. And I think it's important that we talk about this distinction because it just goes to show like you and I have pretty much had a very similar trajectory in terms of like where we've been, what we've done. And it's funny to think that we've done it with different mentalities about how to get there and what that means. So I think it just goes to show like there is no one size fits all as a coach, as a player, as a team, like whatever, but it's just so interesting to like really dive into the inner workings of women footballers because, and everything that you do, winning of course it's at the top but like how you get there and how you view it can be different the adversity that you face especially as a female footballer can be different and like all of these things so definitely think that that is super super interesting yeah I mean there's not one script for winning and there's not one script for development um yeah we definitely differ in this I think especially in the professional game of course yes I'm working on on my weaknesses I struggle to defend and I'm always on the phone with Sydney uh saying, okay, how could I have defended this differently and whatnot? So I'm very aware of my weaknesses, but I, I think there's a saying, 
uh, jack of all trades, master of none. And I think that's really applicable in the professional game. You're chosen um, by your coach for a specific reason. And I think doing that exceptionally well is more valuable than doing everything decently well. I agree with you, but I think that it's, you do the thing that you're good at exceptionally, exceptionally well all the time, or else how can you say you're exceptionally good at it? And then you're still developing the things that you're not the best at, but I'm not developing them to get to the thing that's exceptionally well. Like my left foot will never be as exceptional as my right foot. But if I can't use it, like why the hell are you even on the field? So I do think there is an aspect of like, you know, that exceptional bit stays there, stays consistent. You always do it, but you need to develop the other parts of your game or else I feel like you'll just be stuck at that exceptional part. Like you'll never be able to be exceptional at this and be decent at this and like go a little bit further. So I agree with you with with that saying, but I just think it's a, a different mentality. No, I think that the, the way you explain that definitely makes total sense to me. Like, like I said, always working on weaknesses and whatnot. And as a coach, definitely trying to expand players abilities in other areas um I just definitely see my primary focus as a coach would be to extract the absolute best out of what players really really good at yeah add a few elements to their game but I I guess that's the difference between a developmental coach and kind of a manager I think that a lot of the development goes through the academies and that's super crucial to be holistically developing a player but as you get to this stage where winning is the most important you don't necessarily have the time to be like okay let's do three private sessions a week on your left foot Sydney um so I think one takes precedence over the other uh, but yeah o- overall especially as a player I'm always looking to improve myself in that way so has your answer changed Abby is winning the most important thing in women's football no my answer doesn't change I still think that the things uh leading to winning are the most important and crucial to focus on but like we said, not everyone thinks like that. I think a lot of coaches are really, really heavy on the winning side of things. And in a lot of cases, that can be detrimental to players' mental health. And so that's been a buzzword, mental health in the women's space for a long time. And I want to get into that. How are focusing too heavily on results negatively impacting players? And is it a consistent problem in your eyes, Sid? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely something that I feel like any player can understand, like the pressure on winning and how that affects your mentality and how I definitely feel like in the women's game as well. I think this is a difference between the women and the men's game because of that pressure, women feel the need to be perfect. So as a player, you feel the need to, to do everything right. So even if let's say you have a stellar game, but you know, as a center back, your passing percentage should really be above like 85% and say it's at 80 for a game. Like that seems like the end of the world. So I do think there is this pressure uh, with winning that has a negative impact on mental health, but that's why I think that development piece of like how you deal with that as a team, how you deal with that as a player, what resources you have around your team, because even if you, if you have a perfect game, not everyone's going to be happy, right? Like not everybody got in that match. So like, there's no way that everybody can be happy. Right. So I definitely think that like developing that winning mentality is important in developing it as yourself as a player, but then being on a team where a coach and and the team as a collective develop it in a constructive and healthy way, because I think sometimes it gets too cutthroat and then it's like people are unhappy, people doubt themselves. I think the moment confidence in individual players starts to tank, 
and like people kind of turn on each other and they're thinking like, okay, well, I'm not playing. I'm now lacking confidence. I play the same position as Abby. Abby screwed up in practice on this, this, I do that great. Right. So now you've started turning on each other. So I think that very quickly it can tank and very quickly it can affect a team and mental health. If you put too much pressure and focus too much on winning without regard to how it affects people. That's yeah, really illuminating. And I think a lot of people would agree with you in that way. Like there's a really slippery slope and it can go toxic very quickly um, this is something that I'm trying to work on and think through as a, a growing coach is how to frame it in the best possible way um, to avoid what you were just talking about, Sid. And I think there's a flip side to this. And when players are so, okay, for instance, let's take your example of a player wasn't playing and they're thinking about themselves and then how they compare to other people. I think if you can successfully frame winning as a collective action and our collective goal and this is the most important thing a lot of that pressure and self-absorbed angst so to speak can be put into this cauldron of collective action and so it actually offloads a lot of that pressure of okay yes I didn't play but the team ultimately won and my work and training this week resulted in that win and so I think the the messaging around it needs to be done really well because that's a tricky thing to do but I think offloading that pressure um, can increase and, and benefit mental health around uh, the pressure of, of winning yeah I mean abs in a perfect world for sure but you and I have both been on that side and at a certain point like of course you want the team to win but like I said at the end of the day we're all competitors like you can only frame it in a Oh, okay, well, my work at practice helps the team win for so long. Like, I think that it's really, it's really difficult. Like, is any any player, unless you're brutally honest with yourself and you're like, okay, like, you know, the rest of the team is here and I kind of stack up here. Like, that's my role, just to like be that person. And I think once you reach the professional level, you don't have that distinction. Everybody could play, everybody could start. So I don't think you have that distinction like you do in NCAA, let's say. Is any player truly happy if you're not competing and you're not getting that individual fulfillment that like, you can't deny it, like to be an athlete, you have to have some kind of ego, like you're not getting that fulfillment. Like, are you ever going to be satisfied? Because if that was the case, no one would ever leave. Like if you're on a great team, you would never transfer to another team to experience different things and to have different challenges and to, to get on a, a starting squad, like anything like that. So I agree with you. If you could, if you could find a way to channel that and offload that for sure. But I think that only works for so long. There's no way you can go a whole season with someone and do that. No way. Sure. I think the role of a coach is to avoid that player dropping off the cliff in that way. And so there are different methods to doing that, giving them a carrot, incentives, playtime, uh, giving them starts, things like that. I think that's a controllable factor as a coach is to ensure that that player's ego is fed in some way. So I'm not saying like, oh, everybody happy days, like I'm sitting on the bench for the whole season. Um, I, I know firsthand that's not possible. But when you still feel important, even though you spend two games on a bench, that's that's an ultimate driver of success in my mind. That's going to lead to a winning program. Um, so that's kind of my two cents. And and we can dig so deep into this, Sid, and it can spur off into, into different things. But I think we found this like 
I don't know, very simple understanding that winning isn't the most important thing. It's a result of the most important things. And it's a really delicate balance. And that's why it's so exciting and so hard in football is because finding that balance is a challenge. And we always love a challenge. Yeah, Abs, I think that's really well said. And like you said, we could dive into so many different aspects of this, but I think we've kind of hit the nail on the head for right now. So we're talking a bit about the game and I think it's important we kind of keep that going. So we're going to go into a segment that we introduced a couple weeks ago, and that is Grow the Game. Okay, so a little recap. Grow the Game segment is where we take the questions that people have asked us on Instagram and we just provide our insight. So we are going to take a question that was asked and answer it. Abby, what does a practice usually include and how often is their fitness? I think this differs from team to team for me, Sid. Um, In terms of what a practice usually includes, it differs for how far away you are from match day. Um, So a pregame is going to look very different than maybe a Tuesday um, when you have matches on Saturday. So usually you have the standard pre-activation, warm-up, then you move into some sort of technical drill, then you get more into tactical drill, and overseas we usually always play. So whether that's 9v9, 5v5, um, they they really encourage us to, to play games. In terms of fitness, um, something that I've struggled with throughout my career um mentally on the mental side of things overseas fitness is very different than american football um i think nothing has compared to what i experienced in college for for fitness but overseas i would say in france we actually did quite a bit of fitness in the in the beginning of the week i would say though overseas all of the fitness that i've done aside from the beep test has the ball included in some capacity uh, so those are the two differences that i faced Yeah, I would pretty much echo the same answer. Only thing I would say is sometimes practices will include tactical as well. So if you're like closer to game day, you'll break down your press, let's say, your build out, any of those things. Um, But I would say along the same lines, it's an activation, a warm up, a technical, uh, maybe a tactical or a possession type thing, and then some form of playing. Uh, And I would agree with fitness. It depends where you're talking, what time of the season you're talking about, what day of the week you're talking about. Assuming this is like for the American model in college, I mean, quite frankly, we probably did fitness every day to some degree. Um, We would do like sprints to make up the difference. So if we played 4v4, let's say, and you lost by six goals, you had to run six sprints. Um, So things like that. But at a certain point, I think you reach a, a time in the season where you can't do fitness. Like it's just too many games, your legs are too heavy and all of that stuff. Um, whereas I agree with Abby and my experiences overseas, I feel like the fitness is not just like, okay, get on the line and run, um, which is different from top-ups. I, this all sounds so confusing. Like after a game, if you didn't play, you might do top-ups, which is just running. But yeah, I guess there's kind of just like this overarching, like you need to be fit to be pro like a professional athlete. So it's just like about managing your load. So I really hope that answers the question, but I feel like with most things related to the game, it all depends. So hope that hope that answers your question. Um, and then we also just want to give a shout out to uh, a 
account on Instagram that is a great resource for all current events in the WSL, and that is at all things WSL. Follow them on Instagram. They cover games, players, like literally everything related to the WSL. So if that's maybe your favorite league on the women's side or you want to learn more about it, they're a great resource on Instagram to get some knowledge. So that is at all things WSL. Abby, over to you for games to watch. All right, Sid. So we're going to be on international break this week and part of the next week. And so, of course, we have to go to the Gold Cup, new installation of a tournament for CONCACAF. We have USA versus Argentina, who did very well in the World Cup. And that's going to be on Friday the 23rd, actually the day this episode airs. Following that up, we're, of course, having to go to runners-up in the World Cup, England. They're going to be playing Italy in a match on Tuesday, February 27th. So there's going to be a lot of football during this international break. Those are two good games to watch, but we are excited to hear about other games that you're interested in looking at this week. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email us at megspodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at megspodcast or on your Twitter at Meg's podcast. We hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Please rate us and leave reviews on Spotify or Apple podcasts. Join us next week as we tackle new topics, fight over our different perspectives, and as always, our hot takes. See you next week on Meg's.